like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future material science and engineering. My name is Andrew Falkowski, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Taylor Sparks. Today we are continuing our mini-series with General Electric, and we're going to be talking about ceramic matrix composites. We have an expert from GE, Jared Weaver, who's going to be joining us to give us a rundown on how this technology came about, how GE's using it, and what the future looks like. Jared, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm the technology manager for ceramics and composites at GE Research. I lead a team of 30 people who are focused on developing new ceramic technologies, primarily for use in the aerospace environment. And I've been working in ceramic matrix composites for just about 20 years. Jared, can you just give us a brief introduction to ceramic matrix composites? What are these and why is GE caring about these things? Sure. So most people are familiar with polymer composites that have fiber reinforcements, things like fiberglass and epoxy systems that are used in boats or surfboards or lots of other areas. And ceramic matrix composites are very similar. They're fiber reinforced ceramics that have a ceramic fiber and a ceramic matrix. Okay, so I teach a ceramics class, Jared, at Utah, and I always tell my students that you should only use ceramics if there's no other option, because they're terrible to work with. These things are brittle, they're hard to machine, processing them, it's oftentimes high temperature. They have a lot of negatives, but sometimes they have the properties that really make them ideal for an application. On the other hand, you've got composites, which can also be tricky to manufacture. And here you're seeing the worst of those two worlds in terms of difficulty. You're making a composite, but you're doing it with ceramic instead of that easy epoxy that can sort of fill in the gaps easily. Now you're talking about a ceramic that has to cure and bond. This is a really complicated thing to manufacture, but I imagine that it has some really exceptional properties. So that's right. You put it in terms of taking the worst of each. We actually think it's taking the best of each. Traditional ceramics, very brittle. You drop your coffee mug, it's probably going to break into many pieces. A ceramic matrix composite, because of that fiber reinforcement, has toughness to it. We like to do a little demo where we put down a plate of our ceramic matrix composite and drive a nail through it with a hammer just no to way. show that it's not going to shatter. That is so cool. Okay. So this fixes a problem with being brittle. What other cool properties do they impart? So... Ceramics are naturally great at high temperatures. We like to use them every day in high temperature applications. They have good thermal shock resistance. Many have fairly low thermal expansion coefficients. And they uh, have the damage properties more like metals than traditional ceramics. And so because of all this, they're finding applications in aerospace inside jet engines or in thermal protection systems or in nuclear applications. So it's really exciting to see where all these materials can be applied. Okay. 
is it that kind of changes these properties, right? Like we think of a maybe just if we're still using a an analog of a polymer matrix composite, we typically have some sort of fiber, some high strength fiber that's surrounded in our matrix. What does the structure look like here? Ceramics are because of their brittleness. Are you also using fibers here, or is it something else? So it is the fiber, but what's really giving the toughness is the combination of the fiber and a special interface coating or interface engineering on that fiber. When you get a crack forming in a ceramic, it wants to just go straight through that material and fail catastrophically. But in these materials, the crack, because of that engineered interface between the matrix and the fiber, the crack will go around the fiber without failing the fiber in that crack plane. And so that fiber is actually resisting the opening of the crack and providing that awesome damage tolerance. So you're getting both crack deflection and sort of a closing stress on that crack. That's right. And then as the crack opens, the fiber will fail, but fails away from that crack and it slides and you get a sliding resistance as well, a frictional resistance that continues to add the, to the damage tolerance. Okay. That is so cool. So I imagine there's many different types of fibers, right? There's different categories of these ceramic matrix composites. You can have continuous fibers. You could, I imagine, have discontinuous. I know that in the early days, things like whiskers were all the rage, right? These little really tiny chopped up bits of fibers, and that could go all the way up to continuous and even multi-strand fibers. That's right. So there are lots of different categories. There's the discontinuous, and for some material systems, those might make sense. There are some disadvantages when you have discontinuous fibers and not getting performance optimized in certain orientations and in not getting load transfer efficiently to the fiber because of the chopped nature of it. At the continuous end, we have fibers that we use in our composites that they come in a tow or yarn of 500 filaments that are kilometers long wow. and 10 to 15 microns in diameter. Uh, there are some monofilament fibers that are 150 microns in diameter. So that's roughly the diameter of the human hair versus the 10 microns, which is an order of magnitude smaller. Okay. Another category could be the type of chemistry involved, right? So these are ceramics, but there's lots of different types of ceramics. So the ones I'm seeing that are commonly used are alumina, silicon carbide, obviously carbon itself, but you can have things like mixtures of alumina and silica mullite, all sorts of things. What sort of ones are the ones that, sorry, let me rephrase that. What type of chemistries is GE interested in? So GE is primarily interested in silicon carbide. We have stood up a manufacturing plant here in the U.S. to manufacture the silicon carbide fiber. And we also have a joint venture in Japan to manufacture that fiber. But we also do work with oxide fibers. So things like the Nextel 720, which is molite and alumina fiber. And we also do work in carbon fiber and do carbon fiber reinforced silicon carbide composites. Okay. So give us a timeline, like where did CMCs come from? Are they actually in use or is this in the R&D phase? Tell us about them. Our CMC journey at GE started in about 1990, but the concept for CMCs started about a decade early, earlier in 1980. In the 1990s, most of the work at GE Research was funded through the Department of Energy 
and they were interested in the technology for both land-based gas power turbines, as well as more fuel-efficient aviation jet engines. And a lot of the work that happened in the 90s was just understanding the basic material performance, learning how to make these fiber coatings that gave the damage tolerance, and getting it to a point where there's a real viability to the technology. Um, and something interesting happened in 2001. The Institute for Defense Analysis put out a report entitled, Will Pigs Fly Before Ceramics Do? <laughs> and a great title, very provocative. But they highlighted all of the challenges that were going to happen with CMCs in going from a laboratory technology to something actually flying in a jet engine. And they were right about how hard it was going to be, but their conclusion was wrong. Their conclusion was, it's not going to happen. It's going to cost too much. Nobody's going to have the patience and the willingness to do this. In 2016, GE started flying the CFM LEAP engine, and that has 18 ceramic matrix composite shrouds inside the high-pressure turbine of that engine. And now we have over 3 million flight hours on those shrouds and have manufactured well over 100,000 shrouds for that engine. So they are flying today, and it's exciting to see all the progress that's been made since that report came out in 2001. So wow. you're asking Department of Energy, where's the pigs? Because you guys have <laughs> delivered. That is so cool. That's right. And I imagine there's quite a bit of there's a pretty extensive maturation stage for this technology, right? Like even if you can prove that you can make them and they have nice properties, what does the timeline look from going from, okay, here's a material we can manufacture consistently and demonstrate good properties to actually being used in engine? So that timeline is pretty common for many material systems, I would say. And it tends to be a 20 to 30 year timeline. And that's what we saw with this first generation of CMCs is the work that's happened since the early 2000s and even ongoing now is really maturing the manufacturing and maturing the supply chain. For example, there was no supply chain existing for a silicon carbide fiber, silicon carbide matrix CMC. And GE had to invest $1.5 billion to establish that supply chain. And it took time to, to build the factories and scale up the equipment and get all the learnings that go along with going from making one good component to the first thousand to the first 100,000. So that was a pretty long journey. The good things we look to the future, the tools and technologies that we have today coupled with the learnings that we've had should really accelerate the next generation of CMC materials. And how much balance do you think there is between developments of CMCs in academia versus industry these days? Academia, of course, is willing to look outside standard things and experiment. But as you mentioned, with the importance of having a good supply chain, they often just don't have the money and funding to really push these materials to their limits and really push the quality of the materials higher. So I will admit... I might be a little bit biased coming from industry. I think there are many things that only industry is capable of doing, especially at the later stages of the manufacturing readiness. It has really taken hundreds of people across 
many different skill sets to get CMCs to where they are today. But academia has played a very important role in getting to the key fundamental understandings for the material behavior and the mechanical behavior of the system, along with some of the key processing science that has allowed us to develop the materials to where they are. So it's really been an important partnership. Industry has been able to focus on going from the laboratory to full-scale manufacturing, but we've been able to leverage what academia has done in order to make that happen. So tell me more about the engineering. There is a lot of development that took place over 20 years. You had to figure out a lot of answers to the unknown questions. For example, you've got your fiber and your matrix, and you can pick different chemistries, and you can pick different fiber diameters and lengths and volume fractions and coatings. Like there's so much that goes into us. Can you distill some of the learning that has been developed over the years? For example, tell us about the role of fiber versus matrix. Sure. So in fiber versus matrix, fiber we think of is the primary agent carrying the load or carrying stress in the application. But we can't apply load to it directly. That matrix has to transfer load to the fiber. So it plays a very important mechanical role. And it also plays an important role in protecting the fiber. So these fibers are 10 to 15 microns in diameter. If they were exposed to the atmosphere in a jet engine or even in air, they would degrade extremely quickly. But the matrix provides a level of protection encasing the fibers and transferring the load to the fibers so that the fibers can do their job. Um, A lot of thought and engineering does go into how to process that matrix so it's dense So it has the environmental performance and the mechanical performance necessary for the applications. Do you always want it dense or do you sometimes want residual porosity to tune things like modulus or thermal conductivity or whatever else? So it really depends on the application. There's a whole class of ceramic matrix composites using porous matrices. Primarily those are in the oxide family and I actually did my PhD work in that area. Okay, cool. Tell me, so you said something that you want the matrix to transfer the load to the fibers. That's important. So I'm guessing that a stronger bond is actually good in that case. But then on the other hand, you want these fibers to debond and slide out because that's going to be a toughening mechanism. So is there a trade-off to be had there? There is. If that bond is too strong, we're going to fail catastrophically like a brittle ceramic. If it's too weak, we won't get efficient load transfer and we won't get the right modulus and the right other performance characteristics like the proportional limit out of the material. Okay. Something I learned about when I was getting ready for this episode is that actually it sounds like in many cases you're intentionally adding a coating to weaken that bond, right? Because in in practice, it tends to be fairly strong, that bond between the fiber and the matrix. And so they're adding things like carbon or boron nitride to actually reduce the strength that to cause it to have the strength that you're looking for. That's correct. And in our melt-infiltrated silicon carbide system, we actually add four coatings on top of every single fiber. And those coatings range from tens of nanometers to hundreds of nanometers in thickness. But it's all engineered to allow that that crack deflection and debond performance. And how are you adding those layers? Are you using chemical vapor infiltration or something else? 
Yeah, so we do a chemical vapor deposition process to create those coatings. Okay, that's prior to the formation of the fiber layup then? Yes. Okay, okay. And then is it primarily, you mentioned reactive melt infiltration or just melt infiltration. Is that primarily what GE is doing to make these? So that's the technology that we're using on our composites that are flying in the LEAP engine and will be in the the GE 9X engine on the 777X in the next year or two. Yeah. You mentioned melt infiltration. Is that reactive melt infiltration or just standard melt infiltration? And what is the reasoning behind using that? Is it the density that you can achieve with that method? So we are using a reactive melt infiltrating. We're melting in uh, silicon and reacting that with carbon to form silicon carbide. And we do it for a couple of reasons. One is cost. It's in my mind, the lowest cost densification process to create silicon carbide matrices. But another reason is for the density. That density of the matrix, we get very low porosity, under a couple of percent, no no interconnected porosity. That gives us very good durability performance in these environments, as well as very good mechanical properties in general. There's a lot of other parameters to choose between, and I'm curious over the decades, was it a lot of trial and error when you came to figuring out the right diameter, length, volume, fraction? Tell us about some of what guided, whether it's GE or the broader field, in figuring these things out. So I will say a lot of it was trial and error. Uh, Part of that was dictated by just what was available. There were so few fiber manufacturers out there that you were limited to what they were making at the time. And as they made improvements or changes to the fiber, you tried to adopt those as quickly as you could. But other aspects of it, like the fiber volume fraction, how thick the coating should be, came from a combination of micromechanic models and experimentation to try and get to the right balance of performance. Are you still seeing sort of surprises where people come up with unexpected results, or is it pretty well resolved at this point? For the most part, I would say it's pretty well resolved. We do see surprises occasionally. I will say a lot of the surprises we experience now are just unexpected interaction between things in our manufacturing environment, things that that we hadn't had an opportunity to see before because we didn't have the variability in the laboratory that you get when manufacturing these things at large scale. Yeah, that makes sense. And we'd hope that there aren't surprises in materials that are going on turbine (laughs) engines. We have a very rigorous program for evaluating performance every time we change material lots or every time we make any significant changes to the material and just to do quality control through the manufacturing process. So everything that goes out the doors of the highest quality. Oh, yeah. That's always, that's, uh, of course, any material that's going to be used in an engineering application should be have such a regimented procedures established for it and quality assurance. But it does always get a little bit boring once the material leaves the R&D phase and just becomes standard. But maybe- you know, that can be true. I have to say here that the team has done a phenomenal job for the shroud on the LEAP engine. The kind of yields that we see out of manufacturing are well beyond what you normally see with traditional ceramic materials, which has been really exciting to see them develop that manufacturing technology to that point. 
And as we move into new components, there's new learnings and new things going on as you scale in size or complexity. So there's a lot of adventures still to be had. Yeah, and building supply line, maybe that's a good sort of segue. This technology took a couple of decades to get out. You're now making what you said, 100,000 parts in production or whatever. GE's made pretty major investments to make that happen. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, we, we've invested $1.5 in the supply chain. And that includes a full-scale manufacturing facility in Asheville, North Carolina. It includes a fiber plant in Huntsville, Alabama. And at that fiber plant, we're also producing the prepreg material. So it's the fibers with the matrix in it in sheets that we cut up to create the parts at the Asheville plant. And in addition to that, large investments into the digital tools and automation and other things that just need to be in place to manufacture this complex of a material system at large scale. So Jared, one thing as I was getting ready for this episode and I was learning about the different sort of ways of getting the fibers ready, I saw all this about the different braiding, winding, knotting, different ways of getting these fibers put together. Can you talk about the role that plays in your final product? Because material scientists were often interested in just the material <laughs> and not necessarily the zoomed out system level or even component design level. So can you yep. talk about that a little bit? Sure. And this is one of the areas that makes composites really exciting and really interesting to me is, you know, you have the microstructural characteristics, but there's also some macro scale characteristics or things going on that really have a strong influence on the performance. And in composites, one of those is the fiber architecture. And in a lot of the traditional composites, you'll see just woven cloths stacked together. And that's, in my mind, the simplest kind of system. But there's all sorts of three-dimensional braiding techniques or weaving techniques to create very complex structures with these fiber preforms that you then can infiltrate and densify to create your ceramic matrix composite. And that fiber architecture plays a very significant role in the performance of the material system. And so it really depends on the application that you're looking at and what the performance char characteristics you need are and how you would select that fiber architecture. So okay. for our melt infiltrated material, in the LEAP engine, we use what we call the unidirectional prepreg material. So it's not woven, but it's sheets of fiber all oriented in the same direction. And we cut out the plies and stack them together and alternate the direction of the plies as we stack them to create a fiber architecture that has fibers going in multiple dimensions. In something like a rocket nozzle, you might do a 3D braiding process that gives you fiber going in multiple dimensions in and out of the plane, plus or minus 60 degrees. But that's a process that works well with that shape, but may not work well with other shapes. Yeah, gotcha. How much is there an emphasis on net shaping or do you just make big blocks of this stuff and machine it out with, I guess, diamond and water jet or whatever else? So most of what we do is what I would call a near net shape. There, it comes very close to the final dimensional drawing requirements, but there is some minor surface grinding or cleaning up of flashing on edges, drilling of holes, 
things like that required to get it to the absolute final dimensions. There are some other applications where they do make blocks of the material and then machine it out of the block. An example there would be some of the carbon materials used for hypersonic leading edge applications. You know, there what they've done is made a big block, gone through all the densification processes, and then machined the final shape out of that block. There's all these different parameters that you can tune, but how big of a difference do they make? If you change the type of weave or if you're changing your maybe your fiber diameter or maybe the length of those fibers, how much variability in the properties are you able to see? Is it a lot? Does it give you a lot to play with? So it is a lot. Uh, fiber volume fraction is a big one that you can play with. And in some applications, you might choose to, to add fiber in one direction it limits what you can put in the other direction, but because of the stresses, you need more reinforcement in that direction. An example there is like blades. So blades are spinning very fast inside a jet engine, a lot of stresses along the axis of the blade. So you might double up the reinforcement in that direction where you have more stress. Huh. Some of the other things that you can change is the type of infiltration that you're doing. Chemi we do chemical vapor infiltration for some materials, mm -hmm. like our carbon fiber, silicon carbide matrix materials. Those are chemically vapor infiltrated. You have a matrix that doesn't have excess silicon like you get from a reactive melt infiltration process. So it's a higher temperature capable system, but you are trading off some added porosity to the system in order to get that higher temperature capability. Oh, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. My understanding within the literature is that there's quite a bit of work that has gone into trying to find the right ratio and the right processing conditions to eliminate as much of that residual silicon as possible. But once you infiltrate it, it's hard, especially if you're going for that density, there's no way to get it out at that point. Or yeah, are there ways? We have done work in that area and we have found ways to minimize the amount of excess silicon, but you're right. No matter what you do, there will be some effect from having gone through that melt infiltration process. So it will never behave the same way as something that was densified without having that melt infiltration process. And how big of a difference does that make, right? Like how much residual silicon are you able to tolerate, even if you can only give just a rough estimate? Does, is that really the sort of temperature limit? Does that define the temperature limit for these materials or is it other things? So it does define the temperature limit. Silicon melts at above 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit, but it has an effect at lower temperatures as it approaches the melting point. And it really depends on the application and what you would define as the temperature limit. And it's how much time at temperature and what the loads would be. But generally what we say is something with a chemically vapor infiltrated matrix, all other things the same, would have about a 300 degree Fahrenheit improvement in capability over a melt infiltrated matrix. It's pretty huge. It is huge. And it's why even today we have work going on looking at those systems as we generate the next or as we develop the next generation of CMCs. And that's a pretty good segue because 
clearly there's going to be increasing demand going forward for even higher temperature, higher performance CMCs. And eventually you're going to hit the limit in terms of what silicon carbide can do. So what are people looking at for temperatures beyond the limits of silicon carbide? There's a class of ceramics called ultra high temperature ceramics. These are refractory borides or refractory carbides that people have been looking at for these applications for quite some time. And it's just now getting to the point where they're really getting into putting fiber reinforcement into these materials and trying to have these as as an option to drive temperature capability beyond where it is today. There's also high entropy ceramics or entropy stabilized ceramics as an area of interest. I have yet to see data that, that has convinced me that is a viable option, but I also think it's one of those things that's worth looking at and worth understanding, and academia is leading the way in that understanding. Gotcha. And how I, I've seen some fairly convincing products and developments from industry in some of these ultra-high temperature CMCs, but I guess in your estimation, how mature is this? How many, if you could give an estimate of how many more years we are away from any of these being implemented? From an implementation perspective, I would say that we're at least 15 years away from a fiber reinforced ultra high temperature ceramic in an application like a, an engine or a structural thermal protection system where there's high stresses and high temperature gradients. Yeah, I would say the technology is really still at the early laboratory scale and mostly focused on how do you process even just a flat plate and get the performance requirements out of that simple structure. Yeah, for sure. If these materials go to higher temperatures, it's going to require higher temperatures to process them as well. Yeah, you're adding that dimension, but a lot of these also have very unique chemistries and react in certain ways. And so that adds an additional challenge. It does. We're still learning what all the different interactions can be and still learning where one material system is going to perform better than another and also what drives that performance. Much of the work that's been done has found that even small amounts of impurities can have a very strong impact in the performance of these ultra-high temperature ceramics in terms of oxidation or other key performance characteristics. Yeah, they're ceramics after all. That makes sense. They tend to be rare event sensitive materials. Yes. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that also comes back to the supply supply chain issues. My understanding is that zirconium carbide or hafnium carbide are very interesting materials for these ultra-high temperature CMCs, but the supply chains for zirconium and hafnium are unique and fairly underdeveloped, especially in the nuclear industry. Yeah, hafnium was something that most pe- or most mining operations aren't mining directly for hafnium. It's a byproduct of another mining op- operation like zirconium. And it is one of those materials that, that does right now have a much smaller supply chain. And there could be concerns with the stability of that supply chain as things scale and there's greater demand for the material. Oh, yeah. And zirconium and hafnium are so similar that the separation process is just incredibly expensive from my understanding as well. And so getting the necessary purity, if that's desirable or necessary, is 
definitely going to be a challenge. Maybe as a final question, we've done a couple episodes on additive manufacturing, and there has been some glimpses of what additive could be for CMCs. Do you want to talk about what that might hold for the future? Sure. So I like additive manufacturing. I think it has a role to play in future manufacturing technologies for all sorts of components. It is at very early stages for ceramic matrix composites. There are two classes of additive manufacturing. One is for discontinuous fibers Mm -hmm. and another is for continuous fibers. And as you can imagine, building a structure additively with continuous fibers is going to be much harder than with discontinuous fibers. (laughs) But the polymer composite industry has been working this problem for the last decade. And there's a lot of learnings there that we can leverage. The most promising technology in my viewpoint is with automated fiber placement technologies. Those lay down rectangular strips of material to build up a structure. Traditionally, they have been used for large airframe structures, wings, fuselages, things like that. And ceramic matrix composite components are usually much smaller. Today, our largest component is the combustor liner on the GE9X engine. That's a meter in diameter. Our shroud is on the leap engine is about 10 centimeters long. Leveraging a technology like automated fiber placement to make these smaller structures is going to take a change in the equipment and a change in that process to make it happen. And then our materials are more challenging to work with and less well understood than just a polymer matrix and a glass or carbon fiber would be. So you're Uh, saying there's still jobs for material scientists in the future then? Absolutely. (laughs) We will continue to be needed for generations to come. Okay. Jared, thank you so much for joining us. This was a really cool episode. We learned a lot about CMCs. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me today. This has been a lot of fun. Behind every GE innovation is a breakthrough material. First, it was the tungsten filament that enabled GE to bring light bulbs to the mainstream in the early 1900s. Later, Lexan polycarbonate, invented by GE scientist Daniel Fox, ushered in generations of new plastics, from compact discs and DVDs to the helmet visors of astronauts who walked the moon. Through the latter decades of the 20th century to now, advances in nickel-based superalloys, titanium aluminide, the introduction of ceramic matrix composites, and the first 3D-printed metal jet engine parts have helped propel commercial air travel beyond the Wright brothers' first 12-second flight at Kitty Hawk to some 100,000 flights happening around the world every day. Materials innovation has always been at the core of what GE does and central to the progress our products have driven. My name is Joe Vinsequera, and I'm proud to lead the Materials and Mechanical Systems Technology Organization at GE Research. Together, we are an interdisciplinary team of aerospace, mechanical, materials, chemical, and manufacturing engineers and scientists working to advance the state of the art for complex mechanical systems, innovative system-level designs, advanced materials, and revolutionary manufacturing methods. Every day, 
our researchers explore the boundaries of cutting edge technologies that are poised to change the world. Whether shaping the future of flight or aiding in the transition to a zero carbon energy future, our team helps GE stay at the forefront of innovation, enhancing our products and delivering for our customers. If you're ready to see, move and create the future, consider joining our team at GE Research. To view our latest job openings, you can visit us at www.gecareers.com to learn more. That link is also available in today's show notes. And thank you for listening to today's episode. The Materialism Podcast is sponsored by Materials Today. You can visit materialstoday.com to stay up to date on the latest happenings in the materials science field and read some of their fantastic articles that they've published. You can also head over to Elsevier.com to find out more about their journals, books, conferences, and related programs. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Materialism Podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback, send us an email. Reach out to us. We're easy to get a hold of. You can find us at materialism.podcast at gmail.com, or we're actually much more engaged on Instagram and Twitter. So our Instagram handle is at materialism.podcast, and you can connect with us there. We also post lots of fun pictures and uh, additional stuff about the show, some behind-the-scenes things. So check us out there. It would really, really help us if you would leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcast, leave us a positive review, and it will help us expose the show to new people. That would be really great. Uh, finally, we want to give a big shout out to Alphabot and Colobite. They're the ones who make the really cool music that we use in this podcast. So thanks to them. We think they make good stuff and we think that you should support them. You can find their stuff on Spotify and YouTube. So with that, we will see you guys next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. <laughs>